Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the writer and psychodynamic counsellor Jonathan Asser. For several years, Jonathan worked inside one of Britain's roughest prisons, developing a unique way of working with violent inmates, which he named Shame Fear Intervention. He used his experience to write the 2013 prison drama Starred Up, which starred Jack O'Connell and Ben Mendelsohn. It's a shocking and intelligent portrayal of male relationships, violence and the role Shane plays in both. I was really keen to speak to Jonathan about all this and his insights to working with some of the most dangerous mentally troubled men in the UK prison system. I found our chat really interesting. I hope you do too. Jonathan, welcome to The Reset. Hi Sam, great to be here. Uh, Right, it's a real pleasure to have you here. I'm fascinated by the work that you do. But what I would like to uh, ask you about before we get into that is is how and why you came to do this sort of work and, and, uh, and work with violent individuals. Uh, I think probably two main reasons. One relates to childhood trauma and catastrophic levels of shame. And the second one relates to being institutionalized uh, through the boarding school system. And uh, just looking through your previous guests, actually, I saw you did one with Richard Beard. Yes. And uh, I was actually at the same school that he was at. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and have you read his have you read his book? I have indeed read his book. And what what was fascinating was that given and perhaps even especially because of the issues that Richard talks about in relation to school, it was fascinating that he found himself actually living, you know, a few minutes away and would actually walk through the grounds even today. And I think that's emblematic of how if you've been in that system, especially if you do a 10 stretch uh, as I did, it, it, it never really leaves you. And I think Richard's book beautifully encapsulates that even in that sort of physical sense. But mm. of course, in a psychological and emotional way, I think that's a huge factor as well. Wow. So my, I, and you mentioned my work with violent individuals. My work was very much focused on prison violence and that's where the institutional aspect comes in. And I felt comfortable and safe and at home in prison in a way that I just didn't in the outside world. And I really, after I left school, I struggled to integrate in the outside world. And it was only on returning to to prison as um, I think I was doing a poetry workshop or some kind of something, something literary, something creative writing, something like that. And I remember walking through the gates and just my heart, kind of slowed down. I just felt more relaxed. I felt safer on an instinctive level in a way that I hadn't for 15 years or however long it was since I I was at Radley. So it was a a fascinating moment. And then I remember a a prisoner yelling a kind of probingly hostile comment at me from a a prison yard as I walked past. And I just had a sense of, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm back home. This is great. (laughs) I want to come back here. Yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. Is familiarity or is it like also, does it feel less sort of arbitrary being inside a controlled institution as opposed to 
the outside world, which I suppose seems a bit random by comparison. Yes, I think it is very related to that. And almost the idea someone writes about, I can't remember who, talks about the brick mother. So that that total institution being around you, that, that feeds you, where you have that routine, where you sleep there, you wake up there. It's, a, if you like, a container, and that can become a place of, of safety. And I think the shameful, profound secret that I have and that I share with many violent prisoners is we don't want to face or admit or acknowledge our dependence on the institution. So the fact that prison stroke Radley was a comfort zone, and and I shouldn't just talk about Radley. I, I went to boarding school at eight years old and I was at a prep school called the Dragon School. So that was equally uh, or possibly even more formative than Radley because it was an earlier stage of development. But it's that sense of having something around you that almost stands in for for the mother or or the father or or the parental couple, if if you like, if one's lucky enough or maybe not even luck, but if one has a... Um, a family with two parents present, whatever, whatever. But it, it's that it's that sense of having something around you that that holds you. I think is is so key. And you say you were going in at first doing sort of creative lessons uh, or workshops with prisoners. What was your background, or how did you develop sort of counselling or therapy skills? And well, and that sort the, of thing? the first thing is that is I had a friend from university who was a deputy governor of Feltham Young Offenders uh, Institution, and at that time I was doing performance poetry stuff uh, around London, and I'd been in therapy for ten years. And I was used the performance poetry to kind of get in touch with aspects of myself that I found it hard to engage with in therapy one-on-one with my therapist because I didn't want to uh, frighten or intimidate her in an inappropriate way in getting into this explosive material. Because in, in, in relation to my childhood trauma, a lot of it was pre-verbal. So I didn't feel I had a way of connecting with it without acting it out. Mm. Um, and the performance poetry stage gave me a space where in character I could explore, uh, frankly, psychopathic elements within my personality as a piece of, albeit potentially quite scary entertainment for people, um, uh, in a way that I couldn't safely figure out a way to do in therapy. And I, because of my friendship with the Deputy Governor of Belton, she invited me in to do a creative session, not focusing on my own writing, but on, on prisoners' writing. And the, the moment I walked in, I just knew this is, I'd, I'd come home and I knew that I wanted to be back there. And very 
you know, within the first creative writing session, I'd already shifted to a, a space where we were just talking about stuff in a free-flowing, free-associative way. Uh, things began to escalate. And because of my background in therapy, I'd been in therapy for about 10 years at that point, because I had a connection with these shame violence dynamics, uh, I, it enabled me to read the violence and read the threats in the room and make interventions that with the participation of others uh, meant we could reach a de-escalation. And I was um, hooked on, on that sense of belonging that I found in, in prison, initially working with young offenders, um, a sense of blowing that I couldn't find in the outside world and that I hadn't really felt since being at Radley. Yeah, I mean, it's like a, a skill, a really pretty rare skill that I haven't seen often practiced. And it's portrayed really well by in the movie you wrote in, in Stardust. And it, and I've seen it as well in, uh, in uh, films of you actually doing your work on YouTube. You've got an ability to diffuse a situation when you're sat in a room with a bunch of people who on the face of it, you would imagine would not connect with you. You're very different. You speak differently. It's, it would be yeah. obvious to everyone, to all of them when you walked in the room yeah. that you, you were not sort of one of them, so to speak. Absolutely. You, but you kind of connect and diffuse really extreme situations. I mean, it's kind of nuts because you you fill a room. You seem to fill a room with like a bunch of extremely volatile people, many of whom are actually sort of rivals or or potential rivals and combatants. Sure. So, did yeah. you just discover when you talk about your work at Feltham? Did you just realize that moment that you somehow had a knack for doing this, that you knew what to say or knew how to behave naturally? I again, for me, it, it was I, I felt at home. It was that feeling of being at home. So a space that quotes a normal, non-traumatized person might, or if they perhaps had any sense, you know, would would shy away from and feel scared being in that space. For me, I just felt things switching on and activating within myself. I came alive and. It's just where I needed to be, and it, it felt like home. So, was, why, why was that? Was that was it stuff that you'd experienced before? I mean, was it at school? Were there were there sort of similar scenarios? I think, I think it, we probably have to go back to before, even before school, to childhood, and in my childhood and and I want to be very clear to say this is my personal take on my childhood I'm not stating an objective truth that may apply outside my own personal experience but this is my personal experience was I felt that I didn't exist to my mother unless I was in some way stroking her or soothing her or being there for her and that made me hate her. So my earliest memories are of hating my mother and feeling disgusted and repulsed by her and not wanting contact with her. And that was literally never addressed or commented on by either of my parents. And once I went to boarding school at eight, 
I dropped that hatred. It, it was never resolved or worked through, but I, I became less conscious of it or not conscious of it at all. And in terms of my father, I also felt that unless I was somehow there for him, I didn't exist as well. Like I didn't feel anything coming back from him either. However, my father did get really angry and did become not physically aggressive, but emotionally very, very, very aggressive when shamed. And that was the best part of my childhood because his aggression felt like contact. And apart from my father's rage when shamed, I didn't feel I existed. And so that I think is why a live action space where shame, rage and shame-based violence is my home. It's where I feel alive and it's where I feel um, I think I feel alive rather than dead. Yeah, feel alive. Yeah, so I think that was a key. And then the institutionalized thing was secondary, which came from the, the boarding school experience. So to have a shame violent space within a total institution was just like heaven. It was just like the ultimate ultimate thing. And I never set out to target the most violent prisoners. The strange thing was they were attracted to me. I was attracted to them. And we were all attracted to this space without any of us being aware of it or conscious of it or, well, I can't say any of us, certainly without me knowing what was happening. I just knew that I liked it. And I think there was a kind of self-selection process for, for more violent prisoners where the space was scary and potentially traumatizing for people lower down the violence pecking order. But for people at the top of the pecking order who were warring for territory within the jail, so I moved from Felton Young Offenders to Wandsworth Prison after a year or so, and I had the similar experience there with adults as I had with young offenders. Um, prisoners at the top of the pecking order, so you see the higher up you are in the violence hierarchy, the, the secret here is the less it takes to shame you. So right. because your status demands such a high level of respect, to not give it can just be in terms of a look or a tiny piece of body language, which for someone lower down would be standard and par for the course. But for someone at the top, that presents a serious threat that if it's not dealt with, will, mean, will be perceived by others as, as weakness and vulnerability and your space that you control will be taken from you. So these people are under enormous amounts of pressure and they hadn't had the experience before of being in a space where things did escalate, where you could get into some very serious, very intense uh, aggression, but you could have the experience of de-escalating it and walking away without having to look over your shoulder. So for them, that would never have happened before. 
And that was a key in attracting people into this, this free-flowing uh, shame violence intervention space. What does shame mean to you when you talk about shame? Okay. What shame means to me when I talk about shame is the sense of being vulnerably exposed, the sense that I want to be seen here. Let's say I want to be seen as a potent male in control of what I'm doing. If I experience shame, it means I'm being, I feel I'm being experienced as being seen over here. Let's say within our example, as a less potent male, less able to have control over my space, over my operation, over what I'm doing, whatever that, that may be. So the key thing about shame, it is the quintessential evolutionarily adapted emotion telling us about a threat to a social bond. And in our hunter-gatherer evolutionary roots, it was shame that told us about these threats. It was shame that enabled us to make interventions in real time to deal with and manage these threats. And so I believe it's um, a talent and ability that everybody has to work in a shame-aware way, but I believe it's simply been switched off because as we move from a hunter-gatherer existence to an agrarian existence, and as we built up stores of crops that we weren't able to build up before as hunter-gatherers, we had to build walls, literal physical walls around ourselves. We had to develop governments. We had to develop laws. We had to develop a police force, et cetera, et cetera, to manage our lives. So our shame awareness and our ability to intervene in real time became redundant because we became reliant on a, on a bureaucratic system, if you like, a rule of law system and a police system, courts, etc., which are absolutely fundamental and so vital to our present way of living, but which actually have meant that our shame awareness and our ability to intervene in real time has been kind of switched off. So uh, SVI was about activating that shame awareness. And, and another absolutely crucial thing when we're talking about shame is shame helps us track the threat to the social bond and the reward we get for making an intervention in real time to protect the bond is a sense of pride and it's a sense of belonging and a sense of connection with other people and that sense of pride is not something we're evolved to function without. The sense of pride was what held our hunter-gatherer band together. It wasn't outside imposed laws that you're not allowed to mm. knock someone out or stab somebody or cheat them or, or whatever. It was our ability to make an interaction based on our shame awareness, tracking that shame pride continuum 
that 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 helped us um, create a sense of belonging and a sense of being part of something. So SVI was simply about, if you like, putting the bureaucratic system and the rule of law and police and courts to one side and saying, let's try and resolve disputes based on our, our original evolutionary adapted uh, shame pride continuum, building a bigger sense of belonging amongst ourselves uh, in order to make things safer. So th that was the key to why SVI was able to attract not only violent prisoners, but violent prisoners warring for territory within the same prison based on allegiances either within prison or outside prison that normally would have meant they would, they would have been um, a violent threat to each other. When you, um, I mean, you know, obviously you were working at the extreme end, but when you speak about this, yeah, it makes sense. And, and it's particularly, you know, prevalent, I, I think, amongst men, the pride and the shame. And, mm. and it's like a huge enemy to all of us. But, but when you go to people and say, well, the reason you're acting like this is because you're ashamed. I know no, you wouldn't phrase it like that, but what, what I mean is how do you broach no, it? Because no, yeah, to, to yeah. the sort of men in particular, you're surely yeah. admission that you have any shame is weakness in itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm not going to anybody telling anyone no. about themselves in any way, shape or form whatsoever, because that would be very dangerous with, yeah. with that level of offender. So, the SVI was very much about a space where people could talk about whatever they wanted to talk about, not about what I wanted to talk about. And believe it or not, this topic that they wanted to talk about very often was me. So they would come into the room and get into my psyche, you know, open me up. And I'm the one on the slab, if you like. I'm the one divulging and being as transparent as I can be in relation to the probing I'm getting. And then at some point, they may decide to take it in a different direction. And given the level of dangerousness of the people involved, someone at some point will be shamed will therefore be triggered, will escalate. And that's a point at which I intervene to bring that escalation onto myself. So let's say um, you've got a main player in the room and there's another main player in the room. He's controlling C-wing. This guy's controlling D-wing. And instead of... Uh, looking slightly to the side of the guy on D-Wing, uh, the guy on C-Wing actually looks straight at his body in some right. way mm -hmm. and holds that gaze, not even his eyes, but just, let's say, his shoulder. And the fact that gaze is not there, but there, like sort of one centimetre, means the shame will spike in the room because shame is a social contagious emotion. I will pick that up, and it's my job then to confront the guy who is looking one centimeter to the left instead of one centimeter to the right and not saying you are looking at him 
That's the biggest mistake in the world, which I could never make because that would shame him. It's like, what the fuck? You need yeah. you. I need you to fucking yeah. intervene for me. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. It's not that, but I will find a problem with that guy who's looking in that way. And me just simply facing that guy and turning in my chair to face him, I then become a problem to him just by doing that. Because if, if we remember, shame is all about context and interpretation. I, I want to feel I'm interpreted in that potent context. Right. If I feel I'm being interpreted in a less potent context, the shame signal happens. So me just blatantly looking at this guy brings him into a sense of exposure, like is my potency being questioned here in some way? He will then bite on that and we will have a confrontation. It will escalate. And it's all about staying with the shame. I, I used to call it listening with my whole body to the shame. That enables me to confront him at whatever level, not to flood him with shame and provoke violence, but to take him to that point of shame and to give him the opportunity either to escalate it or to leave it there. And because it's at the point of shame and there is a genuine choice whether to escalate or leave it there, at some point, all I can say is in, in over a decade of doing it, at some point in the escalation, the person I'm confronting always chose to leave it there at some stage. They never took it to ultimately into a violent place. So there was never, ever a contact violent incident in over a decade in any session. And even more importantly than that, there was never a contact violent incident between active participants between sessions. Wow. And this is why SVI was a completely different revolutionary way of working with prison violence. So throughout the rest of the country, uh, if somebody knocks somebody out on a prison landing, the first thing that happens is he's put in segregation, he's put on a different wing, perhaps a different landing with a different unlock, ultimately transferred to another prison. But what the system wants to ensure is those two people never meet again within their own prison where the incident happened. Mm. Why? Because it's going to happen again. Naturally, this, this shame has transferred from the guy chinning that guy to the guy who was put on the ground. He's going to want to, he's, that's very threatening, so he's motivated to be violent back towards that person. That's why people keep them apart. But the big problem is that just passes the issue down the line. It doesn't deal with it. So it's risk avoidance mm. in one's own narrow little world of one's own prison. It's not risk management. So the big difference with SVI is I would bring those two people together and I'd work with the escalation following the incident. We would de-escalate it and those two people could then live on the same landing with the same unlock routine and not present each other a threat. So prison creates risk because we take already violent people we cram them together in enclosed circumstances. So naturally, violence is going to happen as a result of that. And as taxpayers, we're all 
to some degree implicated because we're paying into this system that creates these silos that create this violence. And then the system doesn't deal with the problem that it's created. It just passes it on to someone else. So prisoners can potentially reach each other if they reconnect in other prisons or indeed in the community outside, or they can use intermediaries to target people outside if they can't get to the guy inside. So prisons in this sense create violence and nothing is done to, to manage that risk. SVR is completely different in that if a violent incident happened in the prison, we would resolve it and de-escalate it so that it didn't get passed on down the line. That really didn't mean at all that, that people in SVI were magically no longer dangerous. Far, far from it. They, they were potentially dangerous. And for a sort of rehabilitation agenda and a sort of life change agenda, there's so much more <clears throat> that would need to be done. But SVI was simply a way of managing prison violence I would say in a sane way rather than a crazy way as happens uh, as happened everywhere else and for, for all I know happens everywhere within the UK now. Jonathan, I feel as if when you talk about this, about like shame and almost overcoming it by sharing vulnerabilities with one another, I think, well, that, that principle could be applied to certainly to workplaces, to corporate environments. It might not be physical, yeah. the violence, but the conflict – you know, uh, school, yeah. schools for sure, where, yeah. you know, the same principle of just separating people or chucking people who are disruptive out of a lesson and, and keeping them in isolation, which is done now in many schools, you sort of thing. Yeah. This this idea of, of shame and, and, and I guess letting go of shame can be applied to, to all of us. Is it about letting go or not? No, no, it's not about letting go of shame. It's about... Almost the exact opposite. It's about embracing shame and switching on shame awareness so that you become aware of how important shame is as a signal of the threat to the social bond, enabling you to make interventions in real time to repair that bond. Right. So it's about taking on board the fundamental and crucial importance of shame as a tool to resolve high levels of conflict in real time. Uh, so it's, it's about activating and switching on shame awareness as opposed to shame avoidance. So an act right. of violence is a way of avoiding feeling the shame Okay. and making somebody else feel it and gaining what a form of pride that is what I would call toxic because it's a pride that involves creating a victim. Mm. However, working with shame awareness enables another form of pride, which I would call healthy, which does not create a victim, but creates a bigger sense of belonging. So what the, 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 the Crazy thing about SVI was that the prisoners who would, you would imagine were the hardest to reach, so prisoners at the top of the violence pyramid presenting the biggest control problem to staff, in fact, in SVI become your biggest assets because they're motivated to participate, 
because of the healthy pride that is put on the table because it's a dangerous high-risk situation. It's escalating in a room with other dangerous people that, that few others would want to be in a room with, mm. and yet they're choosing to go there. They're going into this escalation process. They're getting to the other side and de-escalating to create a bigger sense of belonging, even with rivals with different affiliations. And that's where healthy pride is, is the, the absolute, um, it's the ultimate in terms of creating a sense of belonging that doesn't involve victimization. And that's something you can map out in all, absolutely, as you're saying, Sam, in all kinds of different situations. So you can always do a really, really quick check. For example, let's, let's take the political realm. You know, is your leader creating a sense of belonging within his or her uh, party stroke, followers stroke, voters that is dependent on toxic pride, i.e. casting people as the other, as victims, as outsiders that one can, if you like, project one's own shame into and then vilify and, and victimize? Or is the leader attempting something much harder and much more skillful, which is creating a bigger sense of belonging based on healthy pride that doesn't involve victims and actually involves working hard to be even more inclusive in, in relation to not, not just a society within a particular country even, but even between countries. Um, is that pride healthy and inclusive and involving work in a shame aware way, or is it toxic and shame avoidant and involves creating victims? And one other clue there is that the shame avoidant toxic form of pride is also um, dominated and controlled by fear. So in a shame aware context, where you're trying to create that bigger sense of belonging, you have to work with your fear of the other person and you have to be able to face and be with and experience your fear of the other person. And the only way of doing that is in shame aware work because shame is the catalyst for violence. Fear comes secondary. I used to call it secondary terror in SVI because it was terrifying. But by staying with my shame, I could just part the terror to one side because I know it's not the terror that causes the violence. It's the shame that causes, if you like, the secondary terror and Trick the violence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you've uh, remarkably never, uh, uh, I think you said you've never been the victim of, of violence. You've never had hands laid upon you in any of your sessions in throughout all these years. Not far in, more importantly, even than that, but, but, the participants themselves have never had contact violence towards each other ever in over a decade. And even more importantly, that even between sessions, once you're involved and actively participating in SVI, unbelievably and astonishingly, there was never any contact violence between active participants, despite working with the most dangerous, uh, most violent prisoners 
warring for territory within the same prison at the top of the prison uh, pyramid hierarchy. Uh, I was. I have to ask you about uh, one scene in in your brilliant film Start Up, which I I rewatched. Uh, I saw it when it came out. And I rewatched. Oh yeah. It, but in preparation for this, and the, and the characters obviously based on you, played by Rupert Friend, does lose his temper at one Can point I- and grab the uh, 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 grab the deputy warden by the throat. Well, um, what, what I like to okay, we're going to talk about that. But really, the three main characters quotes. Perhaps as writers, you know, we base all our characters on ourselves in a sense, because that's where our research comes from at the deepest level, perhaps. But I would say, you know, if I, you know, Eric represents that, that emotional drive, that, that pure shame, violence, emotional surge. Nev the father represents that, uh, if you like, in a Freudian sense, the kind of superego saying, no, you can't do that. Mm. You can do that kind of, perhaps in a, a harsh, overly um, contentious and severe way. And then the therapist in the story represents, if you like, in a, the, the sort of mediator between those two aspects of myself. So it's mm. like three aspects of myself are yeah. in play. And, it, and it's actually quite important. It's, I hope it's illustrative to our discussion to say that actually the therapist is, is, no, is not, quotes based on me in that he's deliberately characterized as to some degree, ultimately someone not up to the job. Why? Because he becomes violent. You know, Mm. it's no good having a a violence reduction therapist to attack somebody, which Mm. is in fact what the therapist does in, in the movie. And that's prefigured when the therapist goes down to the segregation unit to encounter the kid he's going to be working with, and he raises the flap. Mm. Um, Eric is right there in the gro- in the glass. I said in the grass, nearly, which is an interesting <laughs> Freudian slip around, w- which we can think about, you know. But I, yeah. I know I, those things are beautiful, and I know that's important. It's something around not being able to contain the dynamics of what's happening, which is. Anyway, let's not, let's go, let's go. But anyway, what happens in that moment when he raises the flap is you'll see the therapist moves back about an inch or half an inch like that. Mm. Okay. If you ever watch the film again. And if, if I ever did that, the whole of SVI has just crashed. It's just over. It's finished. So I can, ne- I can never move back like that because if I move back even half an inch, it's shameful to follow me. It's shameful to have anything to do with me. It's shameful to accept me as a leader within the SVI space to some degree. However infinitesimal that shame will be, it will be there in an unacknowledged, unaware way, which will tilt us, however infinitesimally, will tilt us away from healthy pride to toxic pride. And that toxic pride erupts in the toilet with the deputy governor in the film where the, where the therapist actually lunges for his throat. So mm. um, it, it, so I hope that's a kind of, in a funny way, helpful to our discussion to actually see where the, the fictional portrayal of the therapist in the movie is, is actually quite deliberately and consciously um, not me, if you like. Uh, right, I see. It results in a violent, physically violent act towards the deputy governor. Um. 
it's it's fascinating uh, all of this work, and and like I say, I read it, and it you know just the the understanding of the role that shame plays in in all of us and, and in all of our behaviours. You know, I'm not a violent person by any means, but I can I can read your work and listen to you and think I think this just applies to everyone in the way that we act. Yeah. You know, just just come into terms with with this. Of the role it plays inside of you and where it all comes from as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're not working in prisons now then. And uh, that, the work it, was stopped, unfortunately. The work was stopped overnight. So what happened was um, th- there's a potential risk that, quote, that gang dynamics in prison, so a kind of street-level area um allegiance can be ramped up on an international scale and become a motivation to commit terrorist acts. Right. So you can move from a sort of street level thing to, to a kind of international political thing. I, th- I think Richard Reed, the, the shoe bomber, for example, yeah. uh, could fall into that category just, just to sort of pluck a name out of the space there. Um, and it was because of that potential to commit terrorist acts related to gang violence. So it, basically, it's another area where prison can create risk, if you like, in terms mm. of the radicalization risk. Um, and that's why counter-terrorism officials became interested in my work. I was hugely gratified by their interest, had a fantastic dialogue with them, and I felt really, in a way, for the almost the first time that, well, for the first time, actually, that an agency understood what I was doing and connected with it and actually saw the value of it. So that was hugely gratifying for me. I informed the prison of the fact these counterterrorism officials wanted to visit Wandsworth and come into a group. And the very next day, my security clearance to work with the main players in the prison was withdrawn, just like that, after over a decade of work, which, which rendered SVI no longer viable or possible to operate. Now, the prison will say, and have said in writing at the time, that the stoppage of SVI had nothing to do with that summary uh, refusal of my security clearance on that day. Um, but th- nevertheless, that is the timeline. And so SVI was stopped um, after more than 10 years' work with no violence in any session or n- no violence between sessions involving active participants. And if any time within no, that 10 year or more than 10 years, there had been one violent incident, just one, because what I was doing was so controversial and ran totally contrary to the mainstream, which is all about keeping people apart, Mm. passing the problem down the line. I was bringing people together, dealing with the problem there and then. Revolutionary, different approach, and one violent incident would have meant it would have been stopped straight away, but we never had them, and that's why it was allowed to carry on and why it eventually came to the notice of people managing the highest level of risk that the country faced at the time and why they wanted to know more and it somehow i'm not going to conjecture on 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 the reasons behind the stoppage but what i can say is 
the very next morning after the evening that I informed the prison of that visit, my security clearance was withdrawn, and that was the the beginning of of the end of the program. And and so your um, what you've learned and what you can teach about about SVI. What what is that? Is that not being used by anyone now? I mean, do you still? How, how do you feel about the fact that all of this stuff that you've learned and been successful with is not being utilised? Um. I, I I think actually what I'll the way I'll respond to that is actually pluck a positive out of it if 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 that's possible in that I then wrote the the film that I wrote then got produced after the SVI stoppage that gave me a level of um you know what's what's the word it gave me some form of a platform that i didn't have before uh you know i might even this podcast may have been helped by the fact that film happened if you like so here we are talking mm. and i wrote an article in the guardian at the time because that i was able to do because of the film came out and then a fantastic academic called roman gerodimos read that article it took him on a journey into the shame violence space. We had a number of coffees and long chats together. He was fascinated, wanted to learn more. He then reached out to a wonderful person called James Gilligan, who's done amazing work in prisons in in the States. And he's like the daddy of shame violence dynamics really in terms of his work. And I'm a, a, a humble uh, follower and student of, of his in terms of his writing and his his amazing practice. And he got me and James together and others together in this book that has just come out as it goes, I think sort of in the last couple of weeks. And it's called Interdisciplinary Approaches to Shame Violence Theory. And Roman uses the shame forward slash violence uh, term that is was coined by me in shame forward slash violence intervention. The idea being that shame dynamics are violence dynamics and, and vice versa. And if you make an intervention into the shame, you're making an intervention into the violence, whether it's emotional, administrative, or, or whatever, as we've discussed, not necessarily just physical. So the fact that it's funny how things work out, Sam, and, and who knows, maybe that the quotes failure around SVI in terms of the, the stoppage, um, who knows where, where that will lead in a funny kind of way. And it's mm. already led to this book, and uh, which I'm thrilled about and I'm, I'm hopeful about. And, and I think it's because shame is so fundamental and so crucial and so essential to the way we used to resolve conflict in terms of that shame pride continuum over most of our evolutionary history, I've got no doubt that that shame awareness will become uh, more of a topic and more of an area for thought for people more generally. Otherwise, um, the violence is going to win. And uh, we we may be forced uh, in, in that direction at some point, who knows? 
I got one last thing to ask you that I can't quite um, that I really want to understand is that yeah, with Shane we all have like our own kind of frameworks for shame and a lot of it is just contrived it's like a construct like that we care we have pride surrounding you know some sort of arbitrary criteria that has come been handed to us by our family or society or our experiences and you you earlier said you know it's not about letting go but i there's a there's a really fascinating video um a film that i saw of you working with various people um on YouTube, uh, which I'll share with with, with this podcast, and, yeah. and 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 one of the guys you've worked with says to you, he said he actually says, you know, I came out of prison. I, someone shot me in the head. I don't know who it was, and in the past, I would have just been there. Would have been a lot of shame, and I would have had to have gone and dealt with it. But now, I don't care. I'm not even trying to find out who did it. I just don't care. He said, I don't care what people think. I know people will look and maybe think that I'm weak for not responding, but I don't care. And I thought watching that, oh, that's great. He's sort of letting go of all the the silly contrived shit that he thinks is important and just letting go of caring about what people think about him, which I think is, is a great thing to aspire to. But I now think that's not quite what, what this is about, right? It's not just about, you know, who gives a shit what people think. No, it's very much actually not about that. And and really, you know, if I personally was able not to give a shit about what people thought, I don't think I would be a human being. You know, I'm, I care. I'm not able to get there myself personally. Mm. So, you know, if others can, that, that's remarkable, but I certainly can't get there. So for me, it's very much about shame, signaling the threat to the social bond. And do you go down the toxic pride route mm. or the healthy pride route? So that person that you're talking about could have gone down a toxic pride route of retaliation and, and pulling a trigger himself, or he can stay with the shame, tolerate the shame, work with the shame, and go down a healthy pride route um, in terms of, well, I think what you've said about what he said, uh, as I recall, is is an accurate um, depiction of what he said. Mm. I think for me, the way I'd understand that is that is a source of healthy pride for him in, 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 in the way he's talking about that. And that he's got the strength to not respond. Is that where he's, he's deriving the, the pride from? Not, he's got the strength to not respond. And he's reaching out to a bigger sense of belonging beyond his, let's say, particular area allegiance dynamics or organisation operation. Who knows what's going on? But he's reaching out beyond that to a bigger sense of belonging where there's, there is a healthy pride, and it's actually hard. I mean, it's hard to imagine anything more impressive on, on one level than, you know, talk about turning the other cheek kind yeah. of thing. You know, that's pretty phenomenal what he said there and what you've quoted there. So it's about, you know, we're social beings. We do care. This is just my take on it on what other people think. We'd, if we didn't care about what other people thought, we would not have survived as a species, we would not have got through our hunter-gatherer uh, mm. uh, eons of, of, of time that, that we needed to survive to get to a, quote, uh, civilised uh, 
agrarian, uh, more sedentary existence. So the shame pride continuum is, is very live and it is very much dependent on belonging, which is very much dependent on what other people think, but it's actually going for a healthy version and a bigger version than the toxic version that involves victimization. And I hope that's not too theoretical, but that, that's kind of my take on it. And what I'd also say is SVI does actually make no claim whatsoever to ongoing lasting behavior change outside of your active involvement in the sessions. It's not about rehabilitation. So it's simply about managing prison violence in a different way while you're on the program. So because there, there, were no, there was no violence in a session or between sessions, main players or their hitters or their um, other, other people within, you know, people looking to earn their stripes mm. could be involved in SVI and they would no longer be a threat to each other. They would have a different way of resolving conflict while they were actively involved. But once they're no longer involved, then from my perspective, if change happens, amazing. If it doesn't happen, um, that would almost be predictable and par for the course. There's absolutely no claim to rehabilitation. It's purely about managing risk in a different way within prison walls. So let's not be in any way idealistic about this. It's, it's, it's not it's perfectly common for the level of offender involved in SVI to commit murder after being in SVI or violent armed robbery or whatever. Once there, there's no claim whatsoever to rehabilitation. It's the big claim is once that person is in SVI and participating, he won't be a threat to other person, other people in the violence hierarchy within the prison at his high level, mm. and he'll be able to be on a landing with someone he normally would not be able to be on. And other people will see that. The prisoners call it the seeing is believing approach, and other people will see that, and that has, has an impact uh, uh, more widely within, within the prison while those prisoners are actively involved. But once they're not, uh, th then all, all bets are off in that sense. Jonathan, it, the claims it, are modest. I, I suppose I would like to say. Well, well it, it's it is fascinating, really, really fascinating. And um, you know, I have I, I've read some of your chapter in in the book, and I'm oh, yeah. continuing to read it. And right. and I'll I'll put links to that and and you know to what? the film I mentioned yeah. in, in, alongside this podcast, so people can learn more if they wish to. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Sam. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. There you go, Jonathan Asser, a remarkable and fascinating bloke. I've attached a link to the materials we mentioned in our chat underneath this podcast. And if you haven't seen Startup, then check it out. It's streaming on most of the main services. I love a prison movie, and in my opinion, Startup is one of the very best. Anyway, thanks for listening, gang. If you don't already, why not subscribe to The Reset for bonus newsletters and podcasts every week? Just go to samdelaney.substack.com. Until next time, be lucky. And don't let the dickheads get you down.